1 Corinthians chapter 7, our text this morning, we will find in verses 6 through 11, we have been carefully plotting through Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, and by God's grace, we're going to work through both the first and the second epistle. And as we have been working through Paul's correspondence to the church, we have recognized that these letters are going to emphasize this idea of living the Christian life. Living the Christian life. And so this has been kind of the, the theme of our sermons. Everything we've been talking about is going to fall under this one overarching idea or premise. And that is this idea of living the Christian Life. Now, normally when we hear things like this, uh, immediately we're, we begin to bristle because we think of uh, things like lists of do's and don'ts. But what we're not talking about this morning or any of these mornings that we work through Paul's letters here, we are not speaking to the idea of morality. We're not wanting to be moralists. We're wanting to be Christians, Right? And so it's, it's not about do's and don'ts, though Paul will speak to do's and don'ts. We're not looking to uh, check boxes and dot I's and cross T's. That's not what, a Christian, uh, what being a Christian is, by and large. Just because you conform to certain standards does not make you Christian. Okay? God makes us Christians. And God makes us Christians not by calling us to be the best us that we can be. He makes us Christians by taking us out of what we are and putting us into Jesus Christ. Amen? I don't know about you, but I'm very thankful for that fact. That we are not like Muslims today. We're not trying to please or become acceptable to our God. We are not, um, we're not Jews this morning. We're not following the Torah. We're not trying to keep the Torah. We're not trying to obey Moses. We're not trying to make Abraham proud. Okay? This morning, we are Christians. And by the grace of God, he has made us be what we are because he's put us into the righteous Savior, Jesus the Christ. And so the first four chapters, he's going to take the time to expound for the church what the gospel is. And that's essential because if we don't know what the gospel is, there's no way we're going to be able to live it out. And that's essentially what the Christian life is. The Christian life is a perpetual, constant, consistent living out of the gospel. Amen? And so when we talk about living the Christian life, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about checking boxes, yes and no's, do's and don'ts. Okay? And so I have to, I want to always um, uh, kind of set that foundation because if you're visiting with us and you hear, oh, great. The pastor's talking about living the Christian life. Now we're going to get a bunch of things that we can and cannot do. That's moralism. We're not interested in that. We're interested in following after Christ. And let me just say this. Jesus was very keen to stand against his culture's moralism. 
wasn't he? He was keen on standing against cultural moralism. You've heard it said, but what did Jesus say? But I say unto you, okay? We're going to correct the cultural acceptable moralism, and we're going to listen to our Savior and follow after him as God grants us by his grace to do. And so that's what we mean by living the Christian life. And so Paul is kind of dealing now with these, these elements of our existence in this present evil age. And he's, he's kind, kind of tying in the gospel with what we experience and what we confront on a daily basis. And so every one of these things, these issues that we speak to, has to do with the gospel. It's connected to the gospel. In fact, the gospel gives us answers to how we approach and how we confront and how we live in these things. And so every one of these issues that we deal with is going to be a gospel issue. Now we've we've been working through chapter 6 and now in chapter 7 with this idea that Paul has been putting forth concerning the Christian life and sexuality. And Paul has not held back. He's been very direct. He's been very very straightforward as he's dealt with the sexual reality of our present human temporary existence and how that jives with the eternal, heavenly coming age. And so, if I'm a Christian, what do I do with these physical realities? And so he's been dealing with sexuality. We talked about uh, sexual perversions. We talked about uh, right and proper sexual expressions. And there are, there are certain things that that as Christians, God will require and not require, that God approves of and does not approve of. Um, and so one of the things that we have to realize is uh, love is not love in God's eyes. Love is what God has called love. Okay, And so you can't love who or what you want to and, and, and exert sexual expressions upon those things and those people just because you feel that love is love and since God is love, he's going to approve those things. No, there, there is a purpose in sexuality. There is a picture in sexuality and God is going to protect that and he is going to insist on that because it points and pictures him. His relationship with mankind. His dealings with mankind. And so uh, sexuality is not okay in whatever expression simply because you're trying to express what you call love. Right? God will tell us what love is and God will approve those expressions towards love. And so we have to remember this, that there are perversions. There are ways that God will not accept sexual expression. Okay? And so we have to keep ourselves guarded in light of these things. Paul dealt with that. And sometimes that's uncomfortable, especially in our, our day and age when everything is a go. Everything is acceptable. Everything is permissible, but not in the eyes of God. And so that makes us uncomfortable because we know the pressure is coming upon us. Right? Uh, Christians are killjoys. Christians are bigots in the eyes of the world. Because we do not let love be love. Well, we understand that what they call love is not love, at least not biblically defined love. It is, it is really essentially lust. And they want lust to be called love so they can express their lust in the ways they want to and, and find approval for it. Well, that's not how God is going to do this. And we've seen this throughout chapter 6 and even into chapter 7. 
But now we notice something's happened in chapter 7. There's a turn of event. There's an angle that has come concerning uh, relationships, okay? Especially intimate relationships. And now he has moved the conversation from sexual expression and he's moved it to the intimate relationship that is encompassing sexual expression. And now he is talking about things like marriage. <laughs> Another hot topic in our culture, right? We just can't escape this. If we're going to talk about sexuality or we're talking about marriage or relationships, the world has found a way to corrupt it. Well, Paul is going to set this straight in light of the gospel. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to begin to, to lay out more of these principles of relationships or principles for relationships, we could even say, as Paul begins to unpack these for the church. So we've worked through this first matter that Paul deals with, and that's the matter of sexuality, and, uh, and also the, the, the first issue concerning relationship, namely uh, celibacy. Uh, chapter 7, verse 1, Paul is going to address a certain matter that they had written to him about, and that matter, he says, was the matter of uh, this, this maxim or mantra that they were perpetuating in the church, which goes something like this, that it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. All right. So in other words, celibacy uh, was the mantra uh, of Corinth that seemed in their thinking to cause their hearts to be closer to God. Right. It made them more spiritual in the eyes of God. So if I refrain from partaking of sexual intimacies, I am not letting my desires and passions have satisfaction. This must mean that God is more pleased with me. And again, we've talked about this. This is nothing more than just the regurgitation of that pre-Gnostic mindset, which simply says uh, uh, matter is evil and only spirit is good, right? So if we can kill matter, then we can stay spiritual. Well, that's, that's, not, that's not how this is going to work for the Apostle Paul, uh, nor for the Christian faith. And certainly it was not true uh, even of Jesus' own teaching. And so he has to correct this bad philosophy, okay? He says, no, in fact, it is good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman, especially if you're a Christian in that marriage relationship. And we listen to how Paul identified for us that marriage, having a, a, a covenant bond with a man if you're a woman, or with a woman if you're a man, and that's the only covenant bond God's going to accept, okay, between the sexes. It is good then that those two engage in sexual expression. It's a gift to you. It not only paints a theological picture, as we can see in Ephesians chapter 5, but it also is a sanctifying grace. It keeps the spouses protected from the temptation to act upon corrupted sexual passions. And so he dealt with that early on for us in verses 1 through 5. And of course, that first matter could simply be summed up in the form of a question. And the question is, is it all right for couples to continue normal sexual relations after conversion? Or does becoming a Christian and being joined to Christ mean that we can't have physical joining or physical expressions um, as if that might be treason? And Paul says that's not treason because uh, this is actually picturing that. It actually points us to that. They, they go together very well. 
And so Paul has to answer that question for us. And of course, this stems from the Corinthian maxim, which we read in verse 1. But not only does Paul give them the answer of a confident yes, he reminds them that it's owed each other. Each of the spouses owes this sexual expression to their marriage partner. And that is because they are in covenant. And they receive and and deserve and they are owed those covenant rights. You know, one of the things that we can see even with the gospel is that if we have been joined to Christ, what is Christ by way of covenant relationship with the Father is also ours. All that belongs to Christ belongs to us if we have come to God by faith in Christ. We've been joined. We are one with Christ. That was chapter 6. And since we are joined with Christ spiritually, then spiritually all that belongs to Christ belongs to us. This is where we get that, that idea that, that what is his is hers, what's hers is his, in the marriage relationship, okay? Um, this, this last weekend we were up north for opening day of deer season, and we were watching a movie, one of our favorite movies, uh, Runaway Bride. How many of you have seen that movie, Runaway Bride, with, uh, what's her name? Julia Roberts. Man, just, it went, Julia Roberts and, and, and Greer. Uh, it's a very fascinating, funny, uh, um, um, romantic comedy, right? But at the very end, I noticed this as, as it was closing, the marriage scene, she finally gets to go down the aisle and, and stay with the groom. She doesn't run away. They get married. But the vows, at the very end, the vows of the minister went something like this. As they were joining and promising whatever they were promising to each other, he said these, these words in the, by the way of vow. Your individualism is going to strengthen your relationship. Now, I've watched that movie a million times. I never caught that. But I'm in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, right? And I watch the movie and I catch it. Your individualism? No. It's your unity. It is your dying to self. It is the two becoming one flesh. It is the sharing of all things mutually and together that is going to strengthen your relationship, not your individualism. Okay? This is what Paul is fighting against. When they said it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman so he could be more spiritual, Paul says, no, that's, that's just you trying to be you. That doesn't strengthen you. What actually strengthens you is that you engage in sexual intimacies with your wife. That is a strength for you, a grace for you. It's a gift to you. This is what's going to help you, not you trying to be you by yourself. You see? So there's a great gospel picture in marriage unity. And so as we share all things commonly, as we enjoy the relationships that we have that, that belong to each other mutually, this pictures this relationship that we have as a church with our groom, Jesus Christ. Amen? And so marriage has this going for it. And so they owe it to one another. Now what follows in verses 7 through 16 are a few more questions that Paul is going to provide answers for by addressing the, the matters of which they had previously written 
to the apostle about. And so he's going to continue to deal with these concerns on matters that they wrote him about. Our text for this sermon is going to address a second matter that we can also put forward as a question. And the question is this. If sexual relationships are both permitted and owed, if sexual relationships or expressions are both permitted and owed, then should everyone be married? All right, let's stop and look at our text, and let's read this together with that question in mind. Verse 6. Now, as a concession, the apostle tells the church, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift. You're going you're to have to circle that, highlight that, mark that word gift here because we're going to be, this is like, we're going to pound this. This is that nail that just gets pounded deep into the foundation, Okay. Each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Verse 8, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Our sermon title this morning is this, Celibacy and Marriage, Gifts of God. Celibacy and marriage, gifts of God. In addressing these polar opposites, on one hand, you're saying you should stay single. Everyone should be celibate. On the other hand now, the question is going to be, should everyone be married? <laughs> right? If what Paul said was true, that, that, that sexual intimacies within a covenant marriage bond is a gift of God and a grace, a sanctifying grace, then everyone then should be married. Right, Paul? And Paul says, again, you are incorrect. And he's going to deal now with the opposite end of these polar extremes. And here's going to be his arguments for why he doesn't side on one issue or the other definitely. He will not argue that all should be celibate, and he will not argue that all should be married. And here's why. I'm going to give you three reasons from our text this morning. Number one, each one has his own gift from God. Each one has his own gift from God. Now, listen, church, at that statement. This is a sila moment. Have you stopped to think about what he means when he says this, each one has his own gift from God. So you answer these questions for me. Marriage is therefore a gift. Singleness 
is also therefore a gift. From who? God. Now we have to really back up here and we have to realize that we need to be careful that we don't come at our children with this pressure that they have to be married. Now I know that we all would like our children to be married. We all want to be grandparents. We want to have grandkids. And we want to have our name perpetuated in the family lineage going on. We all, we all want that. That's a human, natural human thing. Okay? But we really have to guard against putting the pressure on our children with the emphasis that they must be married as if marriage is some type of a Christian necessity. The church that I served in in the state of Michigan many years ago suffered from this. The college that I went to, Bible college that I went to, um, it, was, it was a dangerous place for a, a, a young man to engage in conversation with a young lady because with every young lady, the pressure was on to be married. So you couldn't simply like talk with a girl for a few weeks to get to know her because the next thing you know is, hey, you guys dating? Is this getting serious? Do you guys really like each other? Do you think this is going to lead to mm? What is mm? Well, the idea was marriage. This is a possibility. He's like, I don't know. I just literally sat down and talked to her. I said, hi, what's your name? Right? I know nothing else about this person. But the pressure was on. And, and, and the young ladies went to Bible college in the circles that we grew up in uh, to find a husband. Can you imagine the pressure? Here I go to Bible college to be a pastor, knowing that every girl that I see is there with her own agenda, and that is to marry me. Well, not just me, but to marry one of us <laughs> preachers. <laughs> Sometimes several of them thought that was the case, and there would be you know, conflicts and that was always fun to watch, but that was the pressure that was built. That was the expectation. And if a young lady graduated from college, God forbid, she went four years of Bible college and did not find a husband. Oh no, she was the, like, you know, the, the old hag, infertile type. She's only good to be a secretary or a missionary. Right? You think you're laughing, but that was the truth. If they didn't make, if they couldn't find someone through four years of college, well, they were like, you know, they were the old dry cow. Well, this is not, this is not biblical. What if her calling was to live out gospel life, a Christian life, in singleness? In some circles, that was a travesty. Biblically, Paul's going to tell us this might be his glorious will for gospel benefit. So let me just say this, young person. You, you don't have to feel the pressure to go get married. Okay. But the reverse is also true. If you think you don't want to be married just because you don't want to have to deal with a woman or deal with a family or have responsibilities of taking care of other people or having to pay extra things out of your paycheck every week, then you also have missed the mark. That also is not biblical, right? It, 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 is, it is becoming of every young man who does take wife, who does have family, 
to take care of his loved ones. This is a godly thing. One of the most spiritual things a, man can, a Christian man can do is to properly take care of his wife and his children. That's one of the very basic gospel realities. Is that you are caring for those whom you love the way that Christ does for his church. So we have to guard ourselves against the propensity, like the Corinthian church, to have wrong conclusions about relationships and sexuality and family life and so on and so forth. Each one has his own gift from God. First, it's extremely important to notice how Paul is going to qualify this statement or this particular part of his answer. Notice he says that what he's saying here with point one, verse seven, is that this is given as a concession, not a command. Though what follows from Paul's pen is in fact inspired writing, it is not an explicit command from God. God is not commanding Christians to be celibate. The Greek word translated as concession here in the English Standard Version basically means knowing together, or we might say mutual understanding. By mutual understanding, by knowing these things together, Paul says, I speak this, not as a explicit command. And by way of extension, this word would mean permission or a grantedness, concession as such. And so dynamically, we can understand this as being a granted indulgence. This is granted to you to indulge in. It is not a command to do so. Some think that what Paul means is that both the Lord and the Apostle had the mutual understanding on the issue that is at hand, that they were on the same page, so to speak, so that what Paul means is that while it was not a command from God to do what Paul speaks of, it is in alignment with the truth of what God works concerning this matter of which Paul now addresses, and therefore, because of this, God has granted Paul permission to encourage the saint to celibacy. That's what some will argue. However, this seems to me to undermine the point that Paul makes next, which concerns this idea that God gives a gift, but not just one gift, uh, one gift, he gives another gift. There are two gifts that God can give. So if Paul says, I'm coming to you to encourage you to be as I am, it's not God commanding you, but God's giving me permission to encourage this in you, that, that would kind of go against his next statement, that God is granting gifts both in marriage, relationship, and in singleness. So for him to encourage one over the other would not be consistent with the way that God works this matter out in the lives of believers. So I don't think that's the right way of understanding what Paul's saying here when he says that this is by concession, not command. I think that Jameson, Faustett, Brown have a better explanation of what Paul means when he says this. And they say this in their commentary. They note that this encouragement 
is not by God's uh, permitting Paul to say it, but it is by way of permission given to them to do it. In other words, they don't have to get married. They can be single. They don't have to be single. They can be married. And so the mantras that bring the polar extremes, Paul wants to push against. You can't say it's good for a man not to have a marriage relationship. And you can't say that all people should have marriage relationship because it's a sanctifying grace or because it's a gift of God. God gives more gifts than just marriage. He also gives the gift of singleness. And so this is not a permission for Paul to encourage one over the other. This is Paul saying they are permitted by God to do one or the other. And I think that's a better way of understanding what Paul is saying. What he's saying is, I'm not going to give you a command one way or the other. I'm going to give it to you as if God is permitting you to do one or the other. So it's by concession that I bring you the opposite side, not a command. So if you're going to marry, then marry. If, you're, if you feel like you can be single and overcome sexual desire and passion, then do that as well. In fact, I kind of wish that you could do that and be like I am in this. Because there's going to be great benefit. He's going to call it good. This is good if you can be as I am. But neither one of these is a command. It's permission. So you are not any more spiritual because you found a spouse at Bible college. If you went and left Bible college and got a ministry education and you didn't find a spouse, that does not make you any less spiritual or godly or approved in the eyes of God. We have to remember this, Christian. And one of, one of, one of my, one of the, how do I want to put this? One of my favorite addresses of Christian singleness is found in John Piper's work, Don't Waste Your Singleness. You know, single people in our culture grow up feeling as if they're not meeting expectation, especially as Christians. Mom wants grandkids, right? Dad wants her out of the house, push her out of the nest, right? The church is expecting her to have a husband to love and children to love and be able to keep a home. There's this weird expectation that comes upon Christian young people, all right? And so sometimes they will spend their whole life seeking ways to get out of their singleness so that they can be on one extreme of the possibilities. But don't waste it. If you're single, you're single for a reason. If you're a Christian, it's because it's connected to the gospel somehow. It's connected to your faith somehow. It's connected to your relationship with Christ somehow. So don't waste it trying to get away from it or to get out of it, right? Um, own it. Surrender it to Christ. Seek God's wisdom and how to best use your singleness for his glory and for the cause of the kingdom. Let your faith be exalted in your singleness just as much as your faith should be exalted in your marriage. If you are married. Are you with me on this? We don't hear this very often, do we? This is something that I don't think I've ever heard any pastor preach on. I've 
books obviously written, articles written, conversations, question and answers. But when, when a pastor has to teach a flock, I've never heard a, a pastor teach a flock like this. This is important. It's going to keep us from moving on one end of the extreme spectrums and failing to live out gospel life within those circumstances. So this would seem to me to fit better what Paul is going to explain in the last part of verse 7. That he wished that they all were as he was, single. But it is not a command for them to be single. Each has his own gift from God. Some, God is going to give the gift of marriage to others. He gives the gift of celibacy. Not everyone should be celibate. Not everyone should be single. Notice how Paul puts this. For God gives one, one kind and one of another. So here's the gospel life. It is a life of balance, isn't it? It's, it? It is a life of learning to uncover God's purpose for your existence. We aren't making our purpose. right? As Christians, if we try to force a purpose upon God's people, then we are going to make a miserable mess of the Christian life, which the Corinthians were doing. And so for us to guard against this, let us heed the gospel wisdom that Paul gives us in protecting against these polar extremes. Each one has his own gift from God. So if you're single and it just isn't working out for you, it just isn't happening for you, you can't find that one, and yet you're finding opportunities because of your singleness for church ministry, for gospel ministry, for faith work, for your own spiritual growth and benefit, then you know what? Maybe you should stop for a moment and say, okay, maybe this is what God has called me to. How do I not waste it? And certainly, never let anybody look down upon you spiritually because you may be called to this. There's a second observation he's going to address concerning the answering of this second question. Should all people be married then? No, there's a gift one for one and to the other another. But there's also this to take into consideration. That it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Okay? So if one feels that they are gifted and called to celibacy, to singleness, then that's great. I would wish that you all were like that with me. But if you are burning with sexual desire and you want to have intimate relationships with someone, that's not, that's not bad. That's not wrong. It would be wrong if you act upon it in an unbiblical way, but having that desire is not wrong. And it would be wrong for you to try to fool yourself and to force yourself into a celibate life when it may be that your desires, the ones that God has put into you, are not allowing you to do that in purity. You have to think about that. In this case, Paul's going to teach, it's better to marry 
than to burn with sexual passion. Now, Paul's addressee in verse 8 here is under dispute. Commentaries like to talk about this in particular. And the reason this is under dispute is because the Greek word that underlines the rendering in our translation here as unmarried, right? He addresses the unmarried and the widows, okay? The Greek word unmarried, tois agamois, is the Greek word, for those of you who care. It strictly means to be unwedded. So to the unwedded and the widows is how we could read that. Now, the discussion comes up as to how do we interpret the unwedded. And so some argue that because Paul specifically mentions widows, that what he means here with this word is widower. And so some would suggest and argue that we should translate this to the widower and the widow. That is the man and the woman who are now presently unmarried. However, it is keenly noted by other commentaries that though this word certainly does mean now unmarried, it also can mean yet to be married. And thus, the argument would go, this word includes all types of those individuals not presently married. So, if you are presently not married because you are widowed or widowered, this includes you. If you are presently not married because you have not found a spouse and you're a young adult and not yet been able to join into a relationship as such, this also includes you as not yet being married. And so, it seems to me that Translating this, as most translations do, as unmarried, is probably Paul's intention. The, 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 widow had less, the, the widow had less control over her situation than, say, a widower would have. If a man is widowed as such, um, the opportunity for him to take care of himself the opportunity for him to find another spouse was, was not a problem. It was very common, very easy for him. But if you were a widow, the likelihood that you would be remarried, well, there could be some stress to that situation for you. If you were too old, you may not be as desired. If you were impoverished with, and you were younger and you were impoverished with a bunch of little kids, that would also make you less desirable. But it would be tough for a man to take in a woman with many children that were not his own and then have to claim them as his own and take care of them as his own. That was a heavy financial burden. So she would, she would be under a little more stress as such. And so I think it's better to keep widow where it belongs and then include all other not yet or not presently married individuals. And so I do like the way this is translated in the ESV. And I agree with it. To the unmarried and the widows, I say. So now he's going to include another group of people into this conversation. 
He says to those unmarried and widowed, I say that it is good for them to remain, and literally the Greek is to remain as I am. So the King James follows this very strictly. Okay, so if you want like a word for word, the King James is right there. Okay, the ESV, as does the Revised Standard Version, and as does some others, um, they will include the word single to help us understand the contrast that Paul is making. He is apparently associating himself with these groups of people, the unmarried and the widows. He's not connecting himself to the married. And so for clarity, the translators want us to understand that what Paul is saying is that if you are widowed and circumstances are stressing upon you, you can't remarry, or if you are yet to be married, for whatever reasons that might be, it's good for you to be in that condition. Well, again, this goes opposite of the modern Christian way of thinking. It's not good in our way of thinking. Paul says, but it's very good in his way of thinking that you be as I am, namely, single. Paul sees their single and celibate status as something good for faith. And this is clearly stated, though at this point he doesn't explain why this is so just yet. Why is it good for faith? We don't know just yet. He's only going to state that it is good for them as Christians to remain in the not presently married status. What he does emphasize is what the real issue is. The real issue is not that you are single, that you are widowed. The real issue is a matter, notice, of sexual self-control. Do you see that in verse 8? I'm um, sorry, verse 9. If they cannot exercise what? Self-control, they should marry. This is something that the Christian is going to be expected to wrestle with. Let me just remind the church that having sexual desire is not wrong. Young men, young women, if you have sexual passions, these are not sinful, they're not evil, they're not wrong. You have to, please understand that. We don't want to, to make you feelingless, emotionless individuals. These are created elements of your existence that God has put with purpose. Okay? But what he does expect for you to do is to, to dominate them to rule them, to have control of them. This present mindset of young people in this, this evil, present evil age is, you know, free, I mean, I can't even use the expression free love. I mean, it takes the 60s concept to an end that is absolutely inconceivable, okay? It is basically, I will do with my sexual passion whatever I want to do, however I want to do it, Okay? It's not even just free love, it's just, it's, it, is, it is unrestrained expression now. We have to fight this. As young Christians, you have to fight this. As single Christians, we will have to fight this. It's expected to. It's expected that we would have the Spirit of God in us. God has given us a spirit 
Not of timidity. Not of fear. Right? But a spirit of soundness of mind and a spirit of self-control, Paul tells Timothy. This is the spirit we have, a spirit of self-control. And so it's going to be expected that we would dominate that as Christians, people who possess the spirit of God from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So this is something that is going to be expected, that we wrestle with, that we seek to overcome, that we keep under the bonds and submitted to, not just suppress, like we're not suppressing them, but we are submitting them as obedient feelings and passions to Christ. That Christ is head over all, even our passions. The exercise of self-control is something that we will be pursuing and that will be pursued if the individual understands Paul's point in chapter 6 that the body is made for the Lord and the Lord for the body. There's a, there's a song, in fact we listened to it coming home late last night from, from Deer Camp but there's a song that's written by uh, Andrew Peterson's daughter, Skye and uh, she wrote the song as a as a high school student I believe. She was confronted with friends and acquaintances that were struggling with their sexuality. And as a Christian young woman, she wrote this song as a reminder for Christian young people who they are in Christ. And there is a, there's a couple phrases in her song that I think are dynamite. And the song is titled, I Am Not My Own. And there are some words in, listen, listen to this phrase, within her song. She says, My body is a temple of the living God. I'll worship in this house that his blood has bought. As I bear his image, oh, may I not profane the holiness I hold in this earthly That's a Christian young woman who is singing a gospel reality that her sexual desires, her sexual intents, her sexual passions are kept within the frame of who she has been created to be in Christ Jesus. I am not my own. I am not my own. And I will not profane who I am and what I am contained. It's an amazing statement and you should Listen to that song if you get a chance. Sky Peterson, titled, I Am Not My Own. However, if these now unmarried individuals cannot contain their sexual desire, then Paul is going to teach them that it's better to marry than to burn with sexual passion. What the statement does not mean to teach is that marriage is a second-class fallback arrangement if celibacy cannot be maintained and holiness. All right? So the Roman Catholic Church has got this all screwed up. Those who are truly spiritual are the ones who can be celibate, and those who can't be, well, then you can be married, and that's one of the things the church blesses. That's not how this works. Marriage is not a standby in case what is truly spiritual, celibacy, cannot be maintained in purity. 
Neither does this statement suggest that marriage should be pursued as a mere means for satiating sexual passions that one cannot keep under control. This was something that was pursued even in our circles growing up. You know, if you happen to break down and you happen to have sexual relations with, with someone whom you were not married to as a young person, the way that you fixed it was they forced you to get married. That way you don't, you don't fail again. Well, that's a travesty. And that's how you view marriage. Marriage is a safeguard, but it's not a band-aid. Marriage is a covenant relationship. It is something that is, that is, that is entered into with a promise. It is a relationship that is going to be fought for, pursued, chosen. And all of the hard times and difficulties, even when, you're, even when your feelings for that individual uh, go cold and wane, whenever you're not attracted to them anymore in the way that you were at one time, when you grow old and your body changes, and this wasn't the woman you married when you were, however, 20, 21, 18, whatever, and he's not as strong and, and he's not as dapper as he was when he came into your life and swept you off your feet. And all of a sudden you're old, you're middle-aged, whatever the case may be, and things have just cooled down. It becomes a living choice. You don't fall back on it. and It's not a simple way to be able to legalize sexual activity. Anthony Thistleton will helpfully put it in his commentary like this. Paul simply paints a scenario of a couple whose desire for each other is so strong that it constantly distracts them from the centrality of the gospel. For some, he says, the service of the gospel is better achieved by concentrating all their energies on gospel matters without the distraction of duties to a married partner and a household. But for others, the desire for each other is so strong that this causes more distraction from the gospel priorities than the actual commitments of the married state. His point is this. For some, you will be able to promote gospel priorities as a married couple more greatly than you could if you tried to do it singly. For others, they might have the advantage of being single and promoting gospel realities over the cares of a partner or household. In which case, they should pursue that. You see, what is at the forefront, what is the focus of this whole conversation? It's the gospel. It's the gospel. How do you live to Christ best? In what status, in what scenario, what case do you feel God has called you to in order to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ in your life? Either way is not wrong. But either way can be wrong if it's pursued apart from the gifting that God has given you. Are you with me? 
Thus, if the desire for companionship and relationship and sexual intimacy is such a distraction that it hinders your gospel focus and usefulness, then it is better to live to the gospel as married than to fail in the exercise of self-control and be constantly held back and brought low by the way of inflamed desires that constantly turn your heart and mind from the priorities of the Christian life. This is what Paul means. Marriage is not a way to make your sexual activity legal. It is not a fallback just in case you can't be super spiritual. It is itself a spiritual reality. And we must treat it as such. Then lastly, we come to verse 10 and verse 11. As he's answering this question, he points out, obviously, first, that each one is given a gift from God. Secondly, he's going to make mention that it's better to marry than to burn with passion because it will become a distraction for us. We're going to see this more intimately here towards the end of the chapter when he, when he kind of fleshes that, that part of it out in detail. But then he's going to come to this third observation, that is this, that if you are married, if you are single and you can do gospel work and achieve that gospel reality as a single then do it i wish that you would do it but if you can't be married so you don't burn in passion and make a mess of your life and distract from the gospel but then if you do marry notice this you cannot separate or divorce in verse 10 paul turns his attention to the married within the church And essentially, his simple point is going to be this. You cannot reverse or undo the marriage condition that God then gives to you. He's going to flesh this out for us in just a little bit as well. And just so that everyone is clear, Paul is going to tap into the most authoritative of authorities, the Lord himself. Notice how he opens up. To the married, I give this charge, and then notice the the parentheses here, right? Not I, but the Lord. Now, previously, he said this is not a command, this is a concession. But to these people, he says, this is a charge. This, This is going to be a command for you. This is a definite for you. And he brings the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, not his apostolic authority, the lordship authority over the life of the Corinthian church. Paul declares to the church that what he says now is not optional, but is in fact a command. And this command is not from him or based on any moral value that the apostle could bring to this teaching, but rather his insistence comes from the command of Jesus Christ himself. Uh, Marvin Vincent in his word pictures uh, says this by way of commentary. Paul is referring to Christ's declarations respecting divorce. Matthew 5, 31, Matthew 5, 32, Matthew 19, 3 through 12. And this is not a distinction between an inspired and an uninspired saying, 
Paul means that his readers had no need to apply to him for instruction in the matter of divorce since they had the words of Christ himself. So if you're burning and you're being distracted from gospel realities and you feel your calling is into the marriage relationship, when you enter into that marriage relationship, I don't want to say you're stuck, but you're stuck. This is your calling. And if you aren't sure this is your calling, it's better for you to take your time than to enter into it as a trifle. Because when you enter into it, you've essentially taken the brush and you've dipped it in the paint and you've made the permanent mark of that picture. You are now painting a permanent mark of the relationship of God with his people through Christ Jesus. It is the relationship of Christ and the church. And that is as permanent as it will get. Amen? When that happens, the wife cannot separate and the husband cannot divorce. These are the two words that Paul is going to address the married with. These two words, separate and divorce. The word separate means to put space between. And the word divorce means to lay aside. These were activities that were very prevalent in pagan relationships. Sometimes a woman could not have a right to divorce her husband, but she could put a separation, a distance between him and her to such extremes that it freed her from any responsibilities to him. And of course, in all cultures, it seems apparent that the male during these ancient times could divorce his wife or set her aside for any reason. Um, we call this the any cause clause. Matthew 19, Jesus is approached. Is there any reason, is there any cause in which a man may divorce his wife? And Jesus' answer to them is, there is no reason except for infidelity. Now there's qualification because we can find biblically there will be other reasons that the Bible will allow spouses to be separated or divorced. And we can have a conversation on that later. But primarily, apart from this answer of Christ, generally speaking, there is no other cause for a man to lay aside his wife. So she burnt his toast in the morning, he would just have to suck it up and eat black toast. You don't get to divorce her over that. And if your husband didn't quote you poetry that evening before bed, doesn't mean that you can separate by way of large amounts of distance between him and you relationally. You can't turn your back, give him a cold shoulder, and give him the silent treatment and make him guess the a thousand guesses as to why you are mad at him. That's not how this is going to work. This immediate teaching is not an exhaustive word. You need to listen to this, church. This is not an exhaustive word to the marriage specifically. Okay? But there is something very specific that Paul is addressing in these words. Paul is not covering all situations, nor is he refusing the reality that there are exceptions to the rule. In general, Paul is addressing a specific matter that was brought to him and is now addressing the idea of marriage as a gift 
as it stands against other gifts of God, namely, in this case, singleness. If a woman does distance herself from the covenant of marriage, apart from any of the biblical qualifications, which again was common in pagan cultures, Paul wants them to know that she is not validated in doing so. If this happens, though, Paul tells her, you have to remain unmarried. You become the unmarried of the previous verses. If she can't handle being alone after she puts distance between her and her spouse and or begins to burn with sexual passion, Paul explains to her she can't go out and go find another man. Her only recourse in the Lord is to go find reconciliation with her covenant husband. But notice this, this is also true for the husband who sets his wife aside in legal divorce. This is why I think Paul uses the word divorce here for the man. Because he could do this legally in his culture. And so we should not miss this very important point in Paul's instruction here. Paul's teaching puts the marriage bond and its validation and its authority outside the civil authority. The justice of the peace doesn't have power to make marriages or to break marriages. The governor of the state of Wisconsin is not the all-seeing divine who can, who can deem something as an institution and break down that institution. He's not the all-powerful one. The authority and the validation of marriage and its bond by Paul's teaching here sets it outside that of civil authority. And just because separation and divorce was legal on the ground of human authority, it did not carry the recognition of divine authority or approval. And just because something is legal does not mean that it is Think Roe versus Wade. So in conclusion this morning, this is what we come away with. One's status of marriage or singleness is, in fact, the work of God in the life of that individual. It is not to be actively opposed or bemoaned. Neither is it to be neglected or to be wasted. Every believer's personal earthly status is orchestrated by God for the benefit and the furtherance of the gospel. In response to the polar extremes, Paul will point out, not everyone should be celibate, not everybody should be married. Neither situation makes one more pleasing or spiritual in the eyes of God. That is the work and result of God's sovereign working of the gospel in the lives of those who he calls to himself. We are only as spiritual as God has caused us to be. 
And you will only be as spiritual as you can be in Christ Jesus. Therefore, if you're going to be spiritual in the eyes of God and stand justified, then we will be standing justified before him by faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. It will be on the merit of his righteousness and his righteousness alone. It will be because we have been placed by God sovereignly into the care and provision and gifting of Christ. We are justified through the cross and the person of Jesus Christ alone. But as we live that out, well, there will be significant realities that we will have to consider. There will be consequences that will come out of our disobedience to this gospel picture. And there will be necessities connected to our life and the gospel as we live that gospel out by picture. And so Paul has answered this second question. Should everyone then be married? And again, his answer will be no. Because everyone is going to have a gift given to them by God. And whether it be celibacy or marriage, it is for his glory. It is in accordance with the gospel. And it is for the cause of that individual faith. So let us not waste it. Do not waste your gift. Let's pray.